I spent a little time researching what many experts tell us is one of the most pressing wellness issues of our time. Some of the most common symptoms are anxiety, social withdrawal, eating disorders, self-neglect, habitual lying, and chronic fatigue. Since Nathaniel Brandon first wrote about it in 1969, it has turned into an industry of over $11 billion per year. So what is this problem that is so widespread? It's the problem of low self-esteem. It is the problem of low self-esteem. Dr. Joe Rubino of the Body Mind Institute says that the problem is so pervasive in the world that as many of 85% of the world's population are affected by this trouble of low self-esteem. It seems that women and young girls are particularly susceptible. One researcher found that because of low self-esteem, I couldn't believe this, 80% of girls in 8th grade are on a diet. Further, it determined that 75% of those girls with low self-esteem also participated in other negative behaviors such as bullying, eating disorders, smoking, and drinking. You may be surprised to learn that one of the greatest drivers of the low self-esteem that has overrun our society in recent years is social media. Clarissa Silva says that social media has been linked to higher levels of loneliness Envy, anxiety, depression, and narcissism. A recent survey of nearly 1,500 people between the ages of 16 and 24 found that the greatest social media driver for low self-esteem was Instagram. Rounding out the top five were Snapchat, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Yet, 91% of the people surveyed say that they're active in at least one of those media. And 80% of those surveyed claim that those social networking sites make their anxiety even worse. So they know that it's a problem for them, but they can't stay away from it. So why do so many people put themselves through this? Have you ever heard of FOMO, parents? It's the fear of missing out. It's the fear of missing out. In fact, 30% of your children are so obsessed with social media that they wake up in the middle of the night without you knowing it, and they go and check it out just to make sure they're not missing something in the middle of the night. 30% of your children are doing that. People who want to influence others' perceptions of them, they will post a facade, they will post this false picture of happiness and joy on their social media pages. People can be whoever they want to be on social media, can't they? They can do whatever they want to do. They can be whoever they want to be on these sites. And so people will log on to these sites and they will go to these profiles where they see families who are always smiling and they'll see people whose hair is never out of place and they feel like, wow, there is something really wrong with me because my life isn't like that. And when they're finally able to put their phones down and pry themselves away from their cell phones long enough to look up at the televisions, then their mind are blasted with images of successful, funny, skinny, attractive TV characters, and they think to themselves, wow, my life isn't like that. I must be a real loser. And so we're not surprised to hear that 85% of the world's population feels less attractive and less successful than everyone else. Young people, listen, when your parents limit your access to social media... When your parents limit your access to television, I want you to know they're doing you a favor. Do you know that? 
They're boosting your self-esteem. Think of that. You should thank them for protecting you. Adults also, listen to this, adults spend on average, you're going to love this, more than 45 minutes a day on social media. Adults spend more than 45 minutes per day on social media. The average Christian American spends less than four minutes a day praying. 45 minutes a day they can find for social media, but they can find less than four for prayer. Adults, it would not kill you to put your phones down from time to time, get off of social media, and spend that time investing in the lives of your friends and of your spouses and of your children. And you may even find, if you do that, that you are able to squeeze a few more minutes into your busy schedules to pray and study the Word of God. And if you do that, you may even make it to the book of Ephesians which is where I'm going to take you today. Now listen, by the time we're finished with our study this morning, I trust that no one in this room will battle with self-esteem. That we will be the 15% and not the 85%. And just hang with me and we'll come back to that. So God declared through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And then in chapter 40 and verse 13, he says this, Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or who has instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Or who showed him the path of understanding? Friends, God is not like us. Do you know that? God is not like us. His mind is greater than ours. Man cannot understand God. And it's important that we realize that. We only understand of God what He has revealed to us. We only understand what He has decided to disclose of Himself. And it's important that we understand that even what God, in His sovereignty, has determined in His own mind to reveal to you and to me of Himself, it is not all that there is to be known of the fullness of God. We couldn't begin to wrap our minds around the greatness, the vastness, the eternal nature of God. There is so much more of God than we could ever fathom. But He has disclosed a limited amount to us. Our temporary minds cannot begin to grasp the eternal truth of the existence of God. It's not for us to know the great depths of the Almighty God. That's not for us to know. But in His kindness, He's revealed to us some things And we do our very best to get our heads around those. Those are the things we need to do our very best to understand. But there are some things about God that we need to understand that are too great for us. There are some things about God that even though we have little pieces of them and we try to understand them, we still can't quite get there. And it's times like those that we need to understand Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29 that says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. We need to commit that verse to our memory, friends. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but there are some things He lets you know. And you should hang on to those and you should pass them on to your children. And so sometimes we just need to say there are truths about God which are the secret things. There are some truths about God that I just can't get. He has determined not to disclose this to us, and so we praise Him for Him, don't we? We praise Him for those things. If His mind wasn't greater than our mind, He would not be God and we wouldn't need Him. If His mind wasn't more eternal than ours, why would we even need Him? If I could comprehend everything there is to know about God, I wouldn't need God. I would be God myself. And today, 
are going to come to a truth that's very much like that. And because man's mind is fallen, what happens is it attempts to systematize its theology. It wants to put everything in a very nice order. It wants its understanding of God to fit very nicely into a perfectly shaped box. And it tries to fit the eternal mind of God neatly within the temporal framework and mind of man. And so it takes these eternal truths of God and it tries to force them into a framework that we can follow and that we can understand. And in the history of the church... When man has done that, it's created division, and it's created problems, and it's created schisms. And in the history of the church, there is no point of theology which has created more division than the doctrine of divine sovereign election, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You've probably heard of this debate expressed as predestination versus free will, and it is one of the doctrines of God. It is one of the characteristics of God's nature that man has never been able to unscramble, and they fought tooth and nail over the years trying to understand the greatness and the vastness of God. But there are basically two views on this doctrine, and it's important that we understand them. The first one is the Calvinist view, which says that people are saved as an act of election of God from before creation, in which He, God, chose the people who would be saved based only on His good pleasure. Okay? Hang with me as we go through this, okay? And I I hope that we're going to get you somewhere this morning where you feel confident in your understanding of sovereign election. So then there is what we would call the Arminian or the Wesleyan view. And this view says, wait a minute, salvation is based on the free will of man. And it is based on the foreknowledge of God who knew who would respond based on his foreknowledge. And so he elected only those people. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to take you to our passage for today. And we're going to begin to wade in as far as we can. We won't get too deep, but as we do that, I want to ask you, listen closely, friends, this is super important. I want to ask you to allow Scripture, allow Scripture and not a particular tradition, not a particular leaning that you may have as you've grown up in your in your church walk with Jesus Christ, but allow Scripture and not your own predetermined understanding to help you understand our passage for today. Help Allow that to help you understand our passage for today, okay? So let's allow Scripture to do that. So remember last week that we began Paul's doxology in verse 3, and this is what he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're in Ephesians 1, verse 3, who has has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now we're going to move on to verse 4. This is where we are for today. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now I'm going to ask you to skip down to verse 11 and we read this. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. A lot of stuff there, isn't there? It seems very complicated, but as we look at our passage for this morning, there are three things that I'm going to want you to take away from our passage regarding God's divine plan for redemption or restoring your relationship with God. And the very first thing that we want to look at is the origination of the plan, okay? So we're going to begin with the origination of the plan. The plan of forming the body of Christ, the plan of your salvation, 
found its origin in God's sovereign will. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that he, that is the Father, chose us. The pronoun here, us, is in what we would call the accusative form. Now hang with me, which is to say that we are the direct object of God's choice or the action of God's choice. So think of it this way. The father, all of you grammar teachers are going to love this. The father, who is the subject, chose, which is the action verb, us, who are the direct object of his choosing. So he, the father, is the one who took the action and you are the object of that action. Do you follow me? This is important for us to understand. You are the object of that action. You are the direct object of the choosing of God. He did that, verse 4 tells us, before the foundation of the world. But should that surprise you? That he did that before the foundation of the world? Because before God even said, let there be light, he had already, the Bible teaches us, designed your salvation. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 2, you'll remember, as Peter shared his powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had come, Peter stood up and he began to preach. And in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, he said, This man, speaking of Jesus here, this man delivered over by the what? By the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. So Peter is saying, look, before the world began, before anything was formed, God had already predetermined the plan of Jesus Christ dying for your sins. He had already made that determination. He had already determined that Jesus Christ was going to come and he was going to die on your behalf. He was going to die for your sins before anything was created. Now, Ephesians 1.5 says that he had already predestined us. And the Greek word is proherizo, which means to separate out in advance. So he separated out in advance. So now listen, before day one of creation, he had separated out those whom he would save in advance. And he developed the plan for Christ to go save them. He had separated them out, and he then developed the plan for Christ to go save them. At that time, he had already determined who would be in the present form of the body of Christ, which is the church body right now. Did he do it in accordance with your will? What does the Bible say? Take a look at verse 5, the last part of verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to whose will? According to the purpose of his will. He did it according to the purpose of his will. Do you get that? So God chose you according to the purpose of his will. Now, there are probably several of you right now who are saying, oh my goodness, Scott Harms, you are a Calvinist, right? That's what you're thinking to yourself. You've got a problem, Scott. You're a Calvinist. Well, I didn't say that. But Scott, you believe in sovereign election. Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I do believe in sovereign election because the Bible clearly teaches that we can't dispute that. The Bible very clearly teaches that God sovereignly elects. It does. Sovereign election is all through the pages of Scripture, and it's probably nowhere any more clearly taught than we see it right here in this verse in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I had a discussion with a really good friend of mine, a very close friend, about that very thing this week. And his response, very predictably, was, well, if God sovereignly elects, then why in the world do we evangelize and preach the gospel, right? Isn't that the response? If God already knows who he's going to save, then why do we bother evangelizing? Why do we bother preaching the gospel? Why even go with that? And I think that's the logical response. I think that's a good response. I think that makes sense. Why in the world, Scott, did you guys just send a group of people down to Guatemala if God 
God already knows who's going to be saved. And the answer to that is because the Bible tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what it says. But why bother if God elects? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. Take a look at John 3.16, because God says this, Whoever believes in Him should not perish, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What does He say in John 6.37? Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. What does he say in Romans 10.13? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it say in Revelation 22.7? Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Whoever wants to come can come. But how is it possible, Scott? So the Bible teaches that anyone who wants to come can come and receive life. But Scott, you believe that salvation comes in an act of man's will? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. I believe that. Why do you believe that? Well, because the Bible teaches that whoever wants to come can come. If they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if they yield control of their lives to Christ, they will be saved. That's what the Bible teaches, doesn't it? So how can you believe both things? I remember when Beth and I were first, I think it was actually before we were even married, we were hosting a college and career age group, and we were just teaching the Word and having a fun time. And I remember at the end, I asked if anybody had any questions. And one guy stood up and said, I've got a question for you. I said, okay. And he said, how is it possible for God to determine and elect people who are saved and still claim that you accept free will? It's like saying, can God make a rock so big he can't move it, right? I mean, I'll tell you how. I believe it because the Bible teaches it. And my mind can't get around it. I can't get there. But I believe that if you believe in Jesus Christ and you submit control of your life to Him, you can be saved, whoever you are, because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches both of those. And so the problem is that our minds can't handle unresolved paradoxical truth. Our human minds can't deal with unresolved paradox. We have to understand it. We have to harmonize and unify our understanding of all the facets of God's character so that they make sense to our human minds. That's our problem. And that's where the problem occurs. Because what happens then is when we begin to do that, we begin to twist Scripture, and we begin to take Scripture, and we begin to pull it out of context, and we begin to use Scripture wrongly to make it resolve the conflict. And what we do is we say, oh, I get it. Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, those are the ones that he predestined to become or to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. It was in his foreknowledge, it was because he foreknew them that he predestined them. And then I think about that, and that's to say, you know, this is it. Yeah, this is it. It's because in his foreknowledge, he looked down the road and he saw how things were going to go in our lives. And he said, oh, wow, it looks like it looks like Beth is going to turn out okay. So let's predestine her. So he looks into the future and he says, oh, it looks like Sam is going to turn out to be a good guy in the end anyway. So let's just go ahead and elect him. The problem is that then Beth and Sam's choice and their behavior determine the will of God for him. Do you see the problem with that? If we allow that to happen, then we're saying that their behavior, their choices are determinate in the will of God. 
And so in doing that, then what they do is they take this Greek word prognosko, which is foreknow, and they make it mean something that's not consistent with the other uses of the word in the pages of Scripture because they have to resolve this conflict. They have to have it harmonized. It all has to finish on a true note. They have to be able to harmonize the whole thing. And you see it with the Trinity all the time, don't you? Have you ever seen this before? We talked about this once before. You mean God is three? That's right. And at the same time, God is one? Yes, that's right. Well, that can't be. I can't get my head around that. And so then what we try to do is we try to resolve the paradox of God by putting him in a human box. And we say, oh, it's, it's really not that hard to understand. You see, God is like an egg. God is a shell and a yolk and a white. He's not like that at all. I want you to understand God is not like an egg. Or they'll say, oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. What a God is like H2O. It can be water. It can be a liquid. It can be ice, which is a solid. It can be a vapor. No, he's not. God is not like H2O either. Oh, I, well, I know that. I'm just trying to help people understand. Friends, don't do that. Don't take God and put him in human terms. Don't do that. Let him be God. God is three, and at the same time, he is one. Well, I don't understand that. It's okay. You don't understand it because his nature is different than yours. You don't understand it because he's God and you're not. You can't get there. Leave the conflict alone. You don't have to resolve the conflict. Allow God to be mysterious. Allow God to be greater than you are. Don't take God and try to shrink him into some size and some sort of a bite-sized morsel that you can easily digest. You don't have to do that with God. He is God. Let him be bigger than you are. If he's not bigger than you, then he's not God. Do you get that? God sovereignly elects. That's what the word teaches. God sovereignly elects. At the same time, he allows anyone who wants to come to him as an act of their will to come. God does it. It's his world. He designed it. He can do it however he wants. But his word teaches both of those things. And you and I need to leave them alone and allow the tension to exist. Allow God to be greater than you are. You don't have to resolve it. Just know that they're both true. You don't understand because it's God's nature. And you have a human nature. Can I tell you something? That's how you know God is supernatural. That's how you know that God isn't some figment of man's imagination. That's how you know that God is not something that man has made up. Because if humans had just tried to invent God, they would resolve that kind of tension. They would resolve that kind of conflict. But God doesn't have to do that. Just embrace the paradox. Let his ways be higher than your ways. Can you do that? Can you say God elects and God allows people to use their will to come to him? It's okay to acknowledge that he elects. Scripture teaches that. So don't twist the clear instruction of Scripture so that you can fit it into your theological box. That's what I'm trying to tell you. God allows people to come as an act of their will. Allow them to do that because Scripture teaches that. His ways are higher than your ways. Don't try to subject Scripture. This is very important. Don't ever try to subject Scripture to the demands of your own human logic. Don't ever try to subject Scripture to the demands of your own human logic. Now, I want to take you on to the second part of the plan, and that's the operation of the plan, which we see here in verses 4 and 5. So the plan of salvation finds its origin in the predetermined will and the purpose of God. So now let's look at the operation of the plan. How does it work? Well, let's go to verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. How? Through Jesus Christ. 
according to the purpose of his will. He did it through Jesus Christ. So God then has predetermined that we would be adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. Now listen, when we have believed the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as it was presented in the book of John, we are then joined to the Lord, remember? At that point, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of us, and we became one in spirit with Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 6.17. We are now in Christ. Do you remember that from last week? We are now... In Christ. And when you are in Christ, friends, you are children of God and you share with Jesus Christ everything that the Father has given him because you are co-heirs, the Bible teaches, with Jesus Christ. So now, because you are in Christ, you inherit, listen, this is so amazing, because you are in Christ, you inherit the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, according to Romans 3.22. So you have now received, because you believe in Jesus, and you are now in Christ, because of that, according to Romans 3.22, you have received, or you have inherited, you have already done that. Remember, we talked about that last week. He's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You've already inherited the righteousness of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. You've already got it. You are, right now, holy and blameless, according to verse 4. Because you are in Christ, you are now holy, and you are blameless before God. The Greek words here mean that you are pure, and that you are flawless. Do you feel like you're pure? Do you feel like you're flawless? Have you ever felt that you are without any flaw? Have you ever thought of yourself as pure and flawless? Are you absolutely perfect? Are you there? I don't think so. I'm not. Do you know that I'm not? I know that I still sin. I know that I have so many flaws that sometimes I'm embarrassed for people to even know that I'm a Christian because my behavior is not always all that it should be. I don't want to bring dishonor to God because of my own behavior and my own flaws. I have a lot of problems, friends. I do. And practically, that's true, isn't it? Practically, you have a lot of problems. Practically, there are a lot of things wrong with you. You know it. The world loves to tell you that. There are all kinds of problems that you have. Your daily practice demonstrates flaw. Your daily practice demonstrates imperfection. But listen, God says you are holy, and he says you are blameless. So how can that be? How can you, knowing your flaw, knowing your imperfection, be declared holy and blameless? It's because, my friends, you are where? In Christ. So even though your practice does not always look so good, because you are in Christ, your position before God is always perfect and it is always blameless. When he sees you, even with all of your flaws, he sees Jesus Christ because you are in Christ. Do you get that? TV and Instagram will say to you that you're overweight and that you're out of shape. You're socially awkward. You're unattractive and you're unsuccessful. The enemy of your souls will tell you that you're a spiritual train wreck. You lie all the time. You talk about people. You can't hold a relationship together. You stole Tootsie Rolls from K&E Market when you were five. That was me. (laughs) My sister ratted me out, too. And God says, you're perfect. You hear that? God says, you're flawless. Listen, God says you're in Christ. God says, you're beautiful. 
You're just the way I designed you. You're absolutely perfect. You're exactly the way I designed you. You're completely holy. I see no flaw. I see no reason for disgrace in you. He says, I see nothing wrong with you. You are in Christ. You are in my family. You are my child and I love you. And why does he say that? Look at the last two words of verse 4. It's in love, isn't it? It's because he loves you. It's in love. It's because of His great love for you that He lavishes on you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's because of His love for you. It's because His love for you was so great that He chose you out from the very beginning of time. Before He said, let there be light, He said, let there be Aaron. I'll take Aaron. He said, I'll take Amber. He said, I'll take Beth. He said, I'll take Each and every one of you, before he spoke the words, let there be light, before he spoke the universe into existence, he spoke your salvation. He loves you that much. He chose you out before he created a single thing. He said, I'll take that one. That one is mine. And I'll take that one. And then he constructed a plan Because he knew that you would be a sinful human being. And he constructed a plan to make it happen. In Romans 5.8, he went to the extent that he would show his love for you. That while you were still sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to come die for you. He said, Jesus, go now and die for Scott. Jesus, go now and die for Don because that one is mine. That one is special to me. I want to hold on to John. I want to hold on to that one. Friends, listen to me. God wants you so badly that He spoke you out from before the creation of time. He wants you so badly that He sent His own Son to come and die for you before you even existed. And He said, that one is mine. And in Christ, I declare this one perfectly holy and flawless. Who needs Instagram followers? Who needs Facebook friends? If the knowledge that the holy God of the universe called you out before He created a single thing and that He proved His love for you by constructing a plan for Christ to come and die for you while you were still a sinner so that you could be made perfect and flawless before Him does not solve your struggle with self-esteem, I want you to know nothing will. No number of Facebook friends. No followers on Instagram. None of those things will ever build your esteem like the knowledge of who you are in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? So let's talk about the purpose of the plan. Why was it His will to predestine us to be perfect and flawless before Him through our belief in Jesus Christ? I want to take you to verse 6. Take a look at this. It's to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Do you see that? That's why He did it. This is a purpose clause. It's to the praise of His glory with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Greek language in this verse is really beautiful to me, and I don't know, maybe it will be to you, but it sounds like this. I love this. It's to the awe of His magnificent beauty and favor. Why did He do it? He did it so that you would be in awe. He did it. He takes people who practice sinful behaviors. He, take pe- he takes people whose practice is sinful. He takes people whose practice is filthy and depraved. And he chooses them out to make their position to be perfect and flawless in Christ. And he does that so that they will all be in awe of his magnificent favor toward them. Do you see that? 
He does that so that you will be stricken with awe and that you will look at Him and say, how magnificent, how unbelievable His grace, how unbelievable His love for me, how unbelievable His mercy, His favor that He has lavished upon me, that He would choose me out before the creation of all things and He would single me out and He would say, Lori, I want you, Peg, I want you, you belong to me. And He did that before the creation of the world, my friends, because He loves you that much. He made them, these sinners, whose practice is sinful to be absolutely perfect in Christ so that they may be held up as a spectacle before all the eternal heavens and before the earth, before the beasts of the field, before the angels, both fallen and holy, that all of creation may look at them and be awestricken by the magnificent beauty and favor that God has shown you. You're a spectacle. And they say, God saved that one? His grace is amazing. God's mercy could reach Scott? Who is like that? Who could do anything like that? Who is like our God? Friends, It's all to the praise and to the glory of God. All creation is in awe of the magnificent beauty of God as He poured out His favor and lavished His love in Christ upon you. All of creation stands in awe of God's magnificence. But do you understand that the glory for your salvation belongs to who? belongs to God. Does it belong to you? No, it doesn't belong to anybody else. You can't take credit for being saved. All glory belongs to God. You didn't go to God one day and say, well, God, I've, you know, I've done my research and, uh, I've gone to all the various places of worship in town. I've interviewed a lot of the deities and a lot of the worshipers and, hey, good news. I finally settled on you. Did you do that? No, you didn't do that. He chose you. He chose you to the awe of his magnificent beauty, to the awe of his magnificent favor. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of what? It's not of your own doing, but even this is a gift of God. Even the faith that you had to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is a gift that came from Him. He chose you. He chose you. You exercised your your will, God, and responded to His choice, and now He's made you perfect, and He's made you flawless, and Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about that, okay? The sovereign, eternal God of the universe chose you, and He said, I'll take that one. That one. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I want Him. I want her. And that's why you're all in this room today. That's why you're all in the family of Christ today. Aren't you glad that He found such value and such worth in you? Father, I thank You for Your goodness to us. It's impossible to imagine that You would love me so much that You would have chosen me with all my flaws and with all my imperfections. In Your great love for me, You chose me and You made me positionally perfect in Jesus Christ. You love me that much. And I'm in awe, God. I'm in awe of your magnificent favor toward me. It's unbelievable that you would do that for me. Thank you for seeing me as perfect, 
even though the rest of the world looks at me in disapproval, that the Creator God of the universe has welcomed me into your family, and you've given me the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who could ever begin to declare the magnificence and the beauty of your favor and of your grace and of your greatness? God, I am in awe of your magnificent beauty and your grace. Thank you.